Hello, everyone. Hope you're doing well. This is Airy in the Air. Welcome to my podcast. I'm a professional action sports athlete, as well as a writer, a filmmaker, a deep thinker. I host this podcast that, for the most part, contains my monologues of my thoughts, of my inquiries. Today is going to be that as well. I just before we start, want to encourage you to support this podcast via donations. That is paypal.me slash airy in the air. You can make a donation one time or recurring. I really appreciate it. This podcast is ad free and created for your benefit. And so if you appreciate that, I would appreciate a donation. You don't have to, but I love you and thank you. You can also support it by sharing it, letting people know that you listen to it and that you like it. You can also follow me on Instagram, follow me on YouTube, follow me on Facebook, at Airy in the Air. Check me out. I do cool things. Walk across wobbly ropes. I've been across the world record slack line, which is two kilometers long. I fly my paraglider more than 100 miles at a time. I do backflips on my skis pretty much every time I ski. So that's the kind of excitement you can look for in on my other channels. But today we're talking about thinking. Actually, we're not talking about thinking. We're talking about the things that come into thoughts as we think. So a couple things today that we're going to talk about. One is the implications of virtual reality technology, as well as why you may or may not be qualified to vote. <laughs> which is a really interesting subject. So the last couple of days I've been out on a trip into the backcountry of Oregon. I was cat skiing on Mount Bailey, which is super awesome. I highly recommend it if you ever get the chance. Riding in a snow cat is really cool. It's like a school bus mixed with a snowmobile, and they drive you to the top of the mountain, and then three ski guides guide a group of 12 of us down the mountain, and we get to ski untracked lines every time. It's super fun and super sick, and I had a blast and met a lot of great people. Anywho... One of the people I met, his name is Jason, and I started to have a conversation with Jason about what he does for work. Jason is a mechanical engineer by trade. He's been a tinkerer his entire life, and he has created a company that consults for really high-end tech. So years ago, he worked on a project where he made like the biggest touchscreen at the time that was like an 86-inch touchscreen that could have 100 inputs at a time, meaning that everyone can put all of their fingers on it at all times and it'll like track all of that. You can Everyone can play around with it at the same time and super cool, right? Well, now he's working for, I'm not sure which company, but he's doing virtual reality technology and he is working on that. And as we started to talk, I asked him about his family and his wife, and he has two young children, and his wife is a acupuncturist, and she's a traditional Chinese medicine practitioner and an herbalist. She is a holistic health practitioner, and 
As you may or may not know, my girlfriend is also a holistic health practitioner. And so it made me wonder what his wife thought of virtual reality. So I asked him pretty straightforward, what does your wife think of VR? I have had a number of VR experiences um, playing really cool video games that are super, super fun and incredibly immersive. But also I've noticed that as I spend 10 minutes in virtual reality and then as I come out of virtual reality, my balance is kind of weird. My, my eyes feel a little strange. So I've noticed how powerful of a stimulus it really is. I grew up playing video games, so I definitely understand how potent these kind of sensory experiences can be and how addicting video games are and for what reasons. And I think that we're beginning to see those implications years later as we as we're a couple decades into really powerful video games. So I asked him what his wife thought of virtual reality and he the question didn't really have much context at its inception. But he said basically, yeah, she doesn't really care for it. She's, you know, whatever. And I said, well, you know, to help you understand my inquiry, I think that, you know, I've had these experiences and I know how powerful of a stimulus it is. I also am curious of the social implications. Like, what is this going to do to our society? What are the negative pitfalls of virtual reality as it's applied to the general population? And, you know, how are people going to be addicted to this in ways that they're not currently addicted to normal video games? And what are the ramifications of this on a widespread scale? And he thought that was an interesting inquiry. And then as I kind of got into what I thought the potential pitfalls were, he said, yeah, now that you say that, it kind of makes, it helps me understand your inquiry. And he says that my wife has been asking me for a number of years, when are you actually going to do something cool? Which I just, and I just told him right off the bat when he said that, when he said that his wife says, when are you going to actually do something cool? When are you going to do something that's positive for humanity? I just said, wow, I love her. Like, and just a small tangent here, I think that that is just such a beautiful example of the positive influence of a woman in a man's life. Because at one level, Jason is going towards where the money is, right? He's working on VR. He's doing the things that tech is is, uh, you know, willing to pay for this kind of really high level engineering. But the other, you know, at home, his wife is pushing him and saying, Hey, like, you know, when are you going to work on something that's positive for humanity? When are you going to uplift us? How are you leading our family towards wholesomeness and, and society towards wholesomeness and positivity? And because I think that she probably has a pretty keen understanding of what that looks like on a personal level as a holistic health practitioner. And I refer to my girlfriend as the CVO, the chief vitality officer of our household. She guides us towards nutrition, 
and health and wellness through our diets, through our thoughts, through meditation, through stretching, through yoga, through uh, ancient wisdom, all these things. These are the kind of influences that Alicia has on my life and my household. And I think that that epitomizes what is beautiful in... I think that epitomizes what is beautiful in a relationship, in a marriage, in a partnership between a man and a woman. That is the masculine goes out and wrestles the world into a shape that can be digested by his family in the form of food, shelter, clothing, opportunities, recreation, all these things. And then the woman takes the, um, how would I say, the more ethereal world, the wisdom world, the feeling world, the uh, emotional world, and she distills those things into what the family can digest in the form of habits and wellness and thoughts and feelings and those kind of things, right? And then what an amazing partnership that is. And that's not just to say, that's actually, that's just to be totally clear and politically correct here. That's divorced from gender roles because that is actually not, when I say masculine and feminine, that is not man and woman, that's actually, you could hypothetically have a very masculine woman who would go out and make money and earn and do that. And then you could have a very in tune spiritual man who would guide his family in the other ways that I mentioned, right? So that's actually not just man and woman. That's actually just a beautiful partnership that is polarized, right? There are two different skill sets, two different ways of looking at the world that can and do support each other in very positive ways. So that was the tangent. Okay. So getting back to the implications of virtual reality. So if we look at just the inception of virtual reality or uh, of video games in general at the Atari there are a number of reasons why that's addictive experientially and why that can hijack how that can hijack our mental reward centers our dopamine and reward chemicals in our brain because essentially as you operate as Mario and you collect coins, your brain gives you a reward chemical every coin you collect. So it's as if you are achieving. You get the same internal feeling that you would if you made money in the outside world. And this becomes a way for people to escape their own failures or their own not-enoughness and to achieve in virtual reality what they're not achieving in external reality. And even those people who are very successful in external reality still get those reward chemicals as they achieve things in video games. So, very interesting. It's also, I feel just from my own experience, there's something very addictive of just having control 
of something that's outside of ourselves like that. Like even just like flying a drone is like really super addicting because you're like controlling this outside thing in a way that is super surreal. And I have a drone. I love to fly the thing. It is so surreal. I have had like out of body experiences flying my drone. I have one time in particular where I was high on acid in Shanghai at sunrise flying my drone through the financial district and across the river and I just like like there was like a moment where I like woke up that I was like holy shit like I'm actually standing on the ground here because I had this experience where I looked through the monitor and I was like I was there I was the drone I was flying the thing right (laughs) anyway tangents okay these This experience of controlling something outside of yourself can also be very addictive, very surreal, very powerful, okay? And as Mario has turned into, um, what's that game? The the first-person shooter, this, like, um, all these first-person shooter games where you're the warrior and you go through, even, like, Halo, you just, you know, shooting aliens or shooting other people and, and... Um, This becomes a very powerful sensory experience. So there is audio, there is increasingly realistic visuals, right? Like obviously Mario was really low fidelity and it was pretty easy for your mind to understand that you're actually not Mario and that, you know, in a freaking four bit image is like pretty easy to not take over your human experience. But as we get into 4K displays and extremely high-end computer-generated imagery and these graphics that are just so fucking convincing, we start to see this immersion that is deeper and more powerful than it once was, right? Virtual reality is the next iteration of that progression. So if you've never had a virtual reality experience, it is, I'm sure you've seen the little headsets. It's a headset that goes over your head and it's like a pair of goggles and the screen is inside of the goggles. And there are different pieces of hardware that can track how your head moves and as you move your head around you're basically looking inside of this new computer generated world well between really high-end graphics and surround sound we can technology is able to create a immersive experience that is more powerful than ever before. I don't think it's completely a new thing because I think that the most recent video games are on a level of immersion that is pretty damn high, but to go into virtual reality, to be able to actually move your physical body and have it reflect in your visual experience is definitely takes it to another level and i think the ex, the the example i made to jason was i thought that it was 
exponentially more powerful than the current highest level graphics of, you know, the, the latest PlayStation or whatever. Because as you watch a screen, it's still external, right? And it's still something that you're looking at. Where when you put the goggles on, you move your head around and you're looking around in this world, you, you even more powerfully blur the line between what is your experience and what is outside of you. Um, and that's not to say that it just hijacks your experience. It's not to say that you when you put the goggles on that you're all of a sudden a zombie that's sucked into this thing. No, you can look, you know, you look down as much as you can. You can see the edge of the goggle on your face and you can be in a virtual reality experience and think, oh, this is a crazy experience. This is, you know, some kind of video game thing. It's not like it just like sucks your soul out and takes over your brain, but it is very, very, very powerful. And as you begin to play these video games that are so freaking fun, like virtual reality is like, it's so freaking fun, man. As you start to play these, you play the thing for 10 minutes and you take the headset off and your balance is kind of weird and your vision is kind of weird because from my own experience, I would say that my body and my eyes are trying to assimilate to the confines of a different reality. It is a virtual reality is not my external physical reality. And so my eyes and my balance are trying to begin to adapt to that. And as I take that off, then once again, I'm having to readjust to a different type of reality. So our conversation began with what are the possible negative outcomes of this? And I think that in the last couple of decades, we've seen an entire generation of people who are subject to a new pitfall of experience, which is video game addiction, right? And I've seen my brother in it. I've honestly, I felt myself in it. And this new thing of video game addiction where the stimulus is powerful enough that you can actually kind of get sucked into that and it hijacks your reward centers enough that you are rewarded enough that that becomes something worthwhile to be addicted to. It just makes me wonder, okay, in 15 years, what are the new implications of addiction to virtual reality? And how can virtual reality be used as like a weapon by big tech and, um, you know, we're already seeing how your cell phone can track you and, and how Facebook can, um, zoom in on your data so that it can manipulate advertising as well as political information and news information and really shape the viewpoints of the public and all these things, right? So how is virtual reality likely to be weaponized against the public in the future and to control people and to shape people's minds? And how can people become addicted to this in another, in a new way, even if that's just, just a vastly more powerful addiction than they're currently addicted to their Playstations and Xboxes, you know? So that was the inquiry we kind of in, and I think that, um, they don't have like big warnings for you. I just want to welcome you into that kind of inquiry. But as we talked about that, I started to kind of integrate the 
well, basically, I told Jason that I loved the influence that his wife had on him, even just by saying, when are you going to do something cool, Jason? Like, obviously, you're extremely smart and you have myriad knowledge of the intricacies and you have, you're in a position where you can actually influence this technology, right? You're on the leading edge of this shit. And the guy is so, so smart. Just like talking to him, you can tell like this guy's definitely got a a head that, um, I mean, you can't argue with the results that he's created this company that consults really high end stuff, but he's just a really clever guy. But as his wife influences him, when are you going to do something that's positive and uplifting for humanity? It made me think, okay, well, you don't have to like stop working on VR because one, that's aligned with your passions. And two, digging your heels in and wishing that technology would go away is fucking some kind of ostrich technique of burying your head in the sand and leaves you powerless. But as you're developing the technology, you actually have power to influence which way the technology goes and how it can possibly develop to be positive and uplifting for humanity. So, bang. All of a sudden, I just thought, I just said out loud, what are the therapeutic applications of virtual reality what does that look like how do we use virtual reality to uplift to educate to heal and as i had this conversation honestly as i had this conversation i had been skiing all day which skiing lights me up it fills up my soul And then I had cooked dinner for everyone and had a great time, which also lights me up. And then I had taken a nice long shower by myself, super hot. And then I'd gone outside and I'd smoked weed. And then I sat down with this conversation with Jason and just the stars aligned for my brain to really start churning on these things and really make a lot of progress fairly quickly in amalgamating these different thoughts that I had had in other things. And so, bang, as we sat there, this shit just kind of fell into place as I talk to him and I explained to him my understanding of how psychedelics are used currently to treat PTSD and to paraphrase Jason Silva who's paraphrasing other authors PTSD is when a person has a profoundly powerful experience that is heavily parsed with negativity okay like the soldier in wartime whose life is on the line who sees his partners die this is something that is so powerful that it's profound and it is so fucking negative and the treatment for this is to have a profoundly powerful experience that is heavily parsed with positivity that is contextualized around the old experience. Okay. And that's where psychedelics come in because psychedelics, if you've ever tried them, you know that they can easily create a space in your experience that is profound. Even just your normal thoughts, even just your 
experience of having a body and having a mind can become extremely profound, right? So the psychedelics are used to bring the person into that space where they can create a very powerful profundity of experience and the guided and therapeutic counselor role contextualizes the profundity of experience and ties it to the old experience that traumatized the person. And in doing so, they can bring healing to the old experience, depression, anxiety, all of these things, right? So, the connection between that and virtual reality in my mind is that virtual reality is an extremely powerful substrate to create profound experience. Because in the same way that psychedelics can alter your perception, putting a VR headset on and a really high fidelity pair of headphones or surround sound system you can literally be transported into a different kind of experience altogether. Okay? And so, opened the conversation into what is the therapeutic application of virtual reality? To Jason, the question is, what does the hardware need to look like for that to happen? What does the software look like? What does that video game look like? What does the experience feel like for a counselor, a psychologist, psychiatrist to guide a person with PTSD through an experience that recontextualizes their old memories? Right? Sometimes there's like regression therapy where counselors will walk combat veterans through their experience and ask them to bring up the old memories and to re-embody themselves in that experience. Go back into the trenches. Imagine that you're there. Imagine, embody the feeling. What does it smell like? What does it feel like? How does all of that, you know, and, and by bringing them back, they can walk them through it and create new memories, new feelings around it, right? I'm not an expert on this but these are the things that I understand that um, that provide fodder for my inquiry as to what it looks like for the future treatment, right? Because I can understand how having psychedelics and guidance and counseling can collide to cure something like PTSD, and rewrite the memories and rewrite the feelings that you have around an old memory and old traumas, right? I can understand that experientially because I've had traumas and I've had profound experiences on psychedelics, right? And I've had profound experiences on psychedelics that were healing for old ways of thinking, um, even just accidentally, even by just guiding myself, right? So I can understand how that would happen. I've also had pretty profound experiences in VR, not in a healing way, but I just have experienced myself in that kind of realm that I can imagine that such powerful sensory stimulus could 
possibly provide a way for counselors and psychologists, psychiatrists to guide people through old experiences and rewrite them, right? And so I would love to know what you think. What do you think? What are the future implications of this? What does that look like? And furthermore, what are those two possible therapies together look like where you're actually taking psychedelics and using taking psychedelics and then going into a virtual reality experience, right? Those two things compounding could be extremely powerful. And so, Jason, if you listen to this, I appreciate your perspective and really loved our conversation as well as super, super, super encourage you to not only inquire in yourself what that looks like and how you can be a part of that change personally and how you can influence the technology and the industry towards that, but also vocalizing that inquiry so that you can get as many people wondering about that as possible, both sides of it. What are the negative implications of virtual reality and what is the highest possible implications and um, uses of that applications what are the highest possible applications of virtual reality for healing for therapy for education for consciousness advancement for community development for any number of those things because i know that the people that you work with and that you work around are extremely bright they are on the leading edge of this technology that could definitely go either way and you have a unique position to be married to someone who is a holistic health practitioner who has her finger on the pulse of humanity and your family and is trying to lift up on people. So I really encourage you to bring her perspective into your work there. That's a beautiful polarity that that you two have in your opinions and your viewpoints and your skill sets. And so, wow, what an awesome uh, partnership to be influencing virtual reality technology so that's my kind of that's my big inquiry around the therapeutic implications of virtual reality let's change subjects a little bit let's change subjects a little bit and to change subjects let's listen to some music here for just a second let's reset okay reset ready here we go Okay, 
Okay, we're back. So, I told you that the thing that we would talk about here, even briefly, is why you may or may not be qualified to vote. And when I say qualified to vote, I mean, like, you probably, the vast majority of humanity shouldn't be voting. And to go way, way back, remember ancient Greece was the birthplace of what we call democracy. The Parthenon was like the signified democracy. And another thing that came out of ancient Greece was philosophy and Socrates. Remember, he was the godfather of philosophy. And Socrates had a deep, deep disdain and a deep concern for the theory that surrounded democracy in general. This is something that Socrates and I share. I'm not a huge fan of democracy because it basically puts 51% of the vote as the mob that can control 49%. I frequently find myself in the minority as far as political opinion, and I don't want the 51% of the sheep to boss around me who I actually find myself in the point zero 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 one percent politically that believes in the non-aggression principle and private property that pretty much wants to be left alone politically. So Socrates made an analogy against democracy that he compared society to a ship. And he said that if you were going to sail a ship across the ocean and through storms, would you, in picking a captain for said ship, would you want to pick from the general population? Or would you want to pick from people who had experience in seafaring? Would you want the committee of people who picked to be able to pick from or the committee of people, do you want those people to be just anyone off of the street? Or do you want those people to be to have knowledge in sailing? In the applications that are reasonable, that are um, relevant. And I think that everyone agrees that if you're going to sail across the Atlantic in a ship, that you would want the people who picked the captain to have knowledge of sailing, seafaring, and ships, right? Well, the analogy in American politics is that the vast majority of people are uninformed. And when I say uninformed, I mean that they have not studied the mechanics of government, like they don't know how the government actually works. They don't know the history of government outside of what was briefly taught to them in high school that they just regurgitated back on some piece of paper. That's essentially nothing. They haven't really, really studied the implications of government. And so, therefore, when they are trying to pick the commander of said ship, 
they are not just ineffective in picking them, they are detrimental to picking them. And he furthermore made the analogy that in a democracy, if you are to imagine that the society is now a body, the analogy now is that the society is a body, and one possible candidate is a doctor, that the doctor's campaign would be difficult to succeed over the campaign of the candy shop owner. And the candy shop owner would say of the doctor, he would say, this candidate, he hurts you. He puts you through pain. He does things that you don't like. He tells you you can't eat whatever you want. He tells you you have to, you know, take a pill. You have to do this. You have to do that. You don't want to do that. I'll give you feasts of beautiful, sweets, and delectable things. But we all know that the doctor might cut you open, which hurts, but it's for your own good. And those two arguments from people who are uninformed, we all know that the candy shop owner wins every time. And that's where we are, folks. We have had candy shop owner after candy shop owner after candy shop owner after candy shop owner. And the doctors of society cannot win. They cannot win. Because the people who are voting are uninformed and like sweets. And so I would contend that the vast majority of humanity is unqualified to vote for the captain of our ship and that's probably you too. So as we approach an election cycle, I encourage you to inquire what are the mechanics of government? Like when a law is in place, what does that mean? How does that translate into enforcement, right? Because the reality is that even a seatbelt law that's designed to protect people is enforced through violence. Let's not forget that because you can get pulled over by flashing lights. If you don't pull over, they'll use force. If you get a ticket for it and you don't pay it, the ticket will escalate until force is justified. Force being that they can come knock on your door. If you refuse, they can break your door down. If you refuse arrest, if you try to defend yourself against a armed police officer, if you say, no, you can't arrest me and you try to wrestle a cop, ooh, we all know how that ends, right? They can kill you. They can handcuff you. They can put you in a metal cage. So understanding the mechanics of government is pretty foundational into starting to pick who is going to enforce or enact what kind of laws on society. And that is a altogether overlooked aspect of our world. And when I have this conversation of just the 
basic mechanics of government, people turn inside out trying to say that laws are not enforced through violence because this is the first time they've ever heard that and the benevolence of government has been pounded into their heads through public education and mass media, which is just not the case, folks. So that's why you're unfit to vote. That's why elections run by mass media are a sham. That's why our entire system is a giant popularity contest like we're in some kind of fucking demented high school. Okay? But the demented high school king and queen, the prom king and queen, can actually use guns to come after you for your tax dollars. Which is crazy! We gotta look out for that kind of stuff. Educate yourself if you're going to vote, because if you don't, then you're pretty much just doing harm. And we have 350 million people, of which half of them vote, right? Which is crazy to think that we hold our voting system on such a high level when only half of the people give a fuck enough to even participate, which I don't think you should vote. I think voting is stupid, and I think that voting every day with every thought, every word, every action in your life is how you actually vote. There's a great quote that I read from Osho yesterday that says, there can be no revolution. There can be no social revolution. There can be no economic revolution. There can be no political revolution. The only revolution that exists is in the individual. When millions of people undergo a positive revolution, they create change in society and not vice versa. You cannot mandate change in society. Can't do it. I thought that was totally perfect and exactly what I've been talking about on this podcast for quite some time now, which is that any change in the world has to come from yourself. That is the quote by Gandhi that is so often misunderstood that is typically quoted as be the change you want to see the see in the world which is misquoted because the quote is actually you must be the change you want to see in the world and man those two fucking words have a lot of implication there. You must be the change you want to see in the world. It's not just be the change. It's you must be the change. It's responsibility. It is absolutely a weight on you. It is not wish for or maybe or if you want to be. It is you must. It is responsibility. You have to be the change you want to see in the world. And if you don't want to see change in the world, then man, you must be addicted to video games and burying your head in the sand like an ostrich. But I know that's not you because here you are listening to this podcast. You made it through this whole episode, of which I really appreciate. If this is something that resonates with you, please share this message. Please donate. PayPal.me slash Airy in the Air. I really appreciate you supporting this podcast. It keeps it ad-free. and keeps it going. Okay. I love you so much. We'll see you on the next episode, my friends. Peace.